and welcome to the Why We Argue podcast. I'm Robert Talese, your host. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Why We Argue is produced by Humility and Conviction in Public Life, a project based at the University of Connecticut, which explores how to balance our deepest commitments with open-mindedness, a respect for reason, and intellectual humility. The series, which is made possible by generous funding from the John Templeton Foundation, features brief discussions with publicly-minded thinkers about the state of civil discourse in contemporary democracy. Today, my guest is Corey Brechneider. Corey is professor of political science at Brown University. He's also visiting professor of law at Fordham. His work is focused in democratic theory and constitutional law. His most recent book, is titled The Oath and the Office, A Guide to the Constitution for Future Presidents. Hello, Corey. Uh, Hi, Bob. Thanks for uh, having me. Looking forward to the conversation. Well, how are you today? I'm great, except for uh, what's happening to our country. I'd say that that I'm in a good mood. (laughs) (laughs) Fabulous. Um, So uh, let's start then talking about what's happening to our country. Uh, So my sense is that in current political discourse, mention of the Constitution tends to be largely ornamental, by which I mean wrapping what you're saying in some claim about the content of the Constitution is often a very nice rhetorical strategy. Those who invoke the Constitution in public discourse, at least, most frequently talk about it in ways that I believe are misleading. And so one of the central themes of your current book, The Oath and the Office, is that the U.S. Constitution is more than a series of legal constraints and rules and divisions and these kinds of things. The Constitution rather projects a public ethos for office holders. Can you say a little more about that? Uh, yes, and I think it's particularly important when it comes to the duties and the role of the president, because uh, that office has become so powerful right now that really one person's set of values, one person's morality, and certainly one person's decisions uh, are going to, through executive orders and through other policies, really just through the use of the bully pulpit and through speeches. Uh, are going to affect uh, the lives of millions of people. I mean, just the numbers of people who work in the executive branch, over 2.5 million people speak to its power. Certainly the decision to use a nuclear weapon is solely at the discretion right now of the president. So in countless ways, that one person's decisions matter. And the ethos has sort of been lost. I mean, it is a constitutional office. The first few seconds in office are defined by the requirement which every president has abided by that you say very specific words, namely uh, you commit um, to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. Now you ask, well, is that just a meaningless sort of thing? I think a lot of people, certainly this president, have treated it as as just a ritual and something that's meaningless. But I think it's not. Uh, I think it's a commitment to abide by very specific and limited powers. Uh, in the war powers, which I mentioned, for instance, uh, the commitment to allow the Congress to declare war, not the uh, president uh, when it comes to initiating war. Um, That's very clear from the text. The commitment to have laws be made by the Congress, not to usurp that lawmaking power. These aren't abstract things for a president. They're uh, very concrete. To not use the office to, you know, in in the instances in where there's discretion to benefit oneself. Uh, So the idea of a self-pardon, for instance, which people have been talking about lately, I think, is completely off the table because uh, it disregards that other regarding quality. So the first part of the book is about these powers and the limits and the ways in which they matter. Uh, you know, can a president uh, fire a special prosecutor? That sort of issue that, that's very much in the news. 
The second part is about the Bill of Rights. And those also, I think, are not abstract ideas. They certainly are principles uh, of religious freedom, but not making law based on one religion uh, is an abstract idea familiar in philosophy, but also required by uh, the, the ban on uh, Congress passing laws or presidents acting in a way that respect or relate to an establishment of religion. Uh, the requirement of not shutting down opposing views, uh, the free speech clause, and the, the one probably most famously disregarded by this president, uh, the commitment to not uh, make policy based purely on prejudice uh, when it came, for instance, to the travel ban. Now, that last case really speaks to the idea of why the values matter and the ethos, because even though I push very hard and worked for a long time to try to get the Supreme Court with others to shut down the what I re- regard as not just a travel ban, but a Muslim ban, they failed to do so. But in my view, that doesn't mean that the executive order wasn't a really very serious violation of the Constitution. So yeah, these are not abstract phrases. Uh, and even though the oath is taken that way, they're they're very concrete principles and in some some cases, clear limits on what a president can do. Right. So great. I wanted to sort of follow up. So we sometimes hear criticisms of the, of President Trump that uh, have the following form. You know, the president will communicate something usually on Twitter or um, behave in a certain way at some meeting of leaders of other countries. I mean, he'll he'll engage in some behavior that people will deny is presidential. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I yeah. take it that in a lot of cases when he is criticized for being unpresidential, what sounds like it's often is the target of the criticism is that he he's sort of being brash and a, and a mm-hmm. brute or you know uncouth or you know using language mm-hmm. unfitting for uh, the office and these kinds of things. But I take it that what emerges in your book though is that there's a there's a deeper meaning to a charge mm-hmm. that someone's being unpresidential that they're failing to live up to a certain kind of ethical ideal of public service. That's right. Yes, I mean I think that's part of it. If you were to put it in the abstract, the idea of the Constitution requiring a kind of respect for the rule of law, a limit on a president's own ambition and in integrating the specific provisions of the rule of law. That's very different than a sort of just general character requirement or, or what people mean by presidential. I mean, President Clinton, I believe, w- was criticized at one point for being unpresidential because of the way he was dressing in the Oval Office. And, and you know, that's not what I'm talking about at all. These are much more specific principles to do with, with provisions that really begin with the text. Uh, but that open up a set of values uh, that we have to care about. So, I mean, I don't think that the prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment is just an abstract idea. I talk in the book about how it goes back uh, to uh, limiting the kinds of punishments uh, that took place uh, by kings of England uh, that were unusual in an attempt to dominate subjects, uh, ear chopping, for instance, and why it is that even if courts don't force a president to uh, refrain from torture, that that provision really is a, a, a... best understood as an anti-torture provision. So what I try to do is to, you know, to, to do a mix of, of uh, constitutional argument by drawing on the cases, but also to look at the principles that are in those cases. And that resembles more, I think, uh, what, what you do in your everyday life of looking at ethical uh, principles in a way that, that isn't abstract, but really has a sort of concrete, concrete uh, instantiation. And, and these are not, you know, hard to understand principles they sometimes are hard to apply because there are hard cases, uh, but but they stand for very serious limits that this president has uh, disregarded. I mean, I, I've given several examples, but you know, one of the very serious ones is the the threat to uh, imprison political opponents, for instance, 
I can't think of a more clear violation of a president's obligation to respect free speech. And of course, there have been other presidents that have violated the Constitution. Uh, John Adams uh, not only threatened to, but did imprison his political opponents using the Alien Sedition Acts. So it's not that this president is unique in the specific violations, but I think what makes him unique is the combination of things that he's done that are not just uncouth or unethical, but really that violate uh, the core tax and values of the Constitution. Right. So uh, just to be clear, so the book, uh, The Oath in the Office, is not explicitly about the current president, but it does, I think, suggest various ways in which uh, the country, the United States, at this present moment might be in the grip of a constitutional crisis or might be on the, the brink of a constitutional crisis, although I know it's a kind of hackneyed thing to say. I mean, the term constitutional crisis itself is something that pops up in all kinds of uh, discussions uh, these days. It seems accurate, I go. I, I guess, though, that yeah. uh, our national politics is plagued with various kinds of either constitutional violations or popular misunderstandings or misapplications or strange appeals to the Constitution. For example, um, that uh, the president currently seems to be setting up a, a claim that there's a national emergency right. as a way of getting a policy initiative that he can't seem to get his own party, let alone the opposing party, uh, to support, seems like there's kind of a threat to the constitutional order. Do you think that our country is in a constitutional crisis? Yes, absolutely. And uh, you're right that the book isn't written only about Donald Trump. It's written with the the device of speaking to future presidents, and it talks a lot about history and historical ways to understand these principles. But I think it also is, I wouldn't have written the book, certainly, without the current crisis. And I started writing it, I had written a piece during the campaign uh, called Trump versus the Constitution, a guide. And it just went through each of his statements and talked about the ways that each of those statements violated a different provision of the Constitution. So for instance, I talked about the Uh, Eighth Amendment limit on cruel and unusual punishment, the due process clause of the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendment, when it came to his proposal to torture the families of suspected uh, terrorists and um, why that was so obviously unconstitutional. That was just one example at the time, certainly the explicit uh, proposal to shut down all Muslim immigration into the United States was, uh, to me, a clear violation of the establishment, free exercise and equal protection clauses. So, you know, I wouldn't have written it without him, but the idea and the idea was, you know, this person is going to bring us into a constitutional crisis because if he he stays true to even a small percentage of his campaign promises, they are so obviously uh, at odds with the core provisions of our Constitution. And the root reality is that the office of the presidency is so powerful now and the Supreme Court so shaky, I guess I would say that it's not clear that these principles can be upheld. So the idea was to write a book that would kind of, unfortunately, it's come true, that in the midst of a instance where the most powerful person in the country, maybe in the world, uh, is continually violating the core commitments of the Constitution and a weak Congress and a, and a court that's wishy-washy at best are not consistently stopping him. Uh, what What's the one thing that can stop it? And it's, frankly, the citizenry to begin a discussion about the 2020 campaign, about possibly about impeachment, about ways of stopping a president. So the third part is is about that, like what to do in a constitutional crisis when uh, the leader of the of the country is using the, this powerful office in exactly the opposite way uh, that the uh, principles of the Constitution, the rule of law, require. I mean, I, I said when I was interviewed about the book, 
uh, right before it came out in the New York Times uh, editorial about Trump and the Constitution that, you know, he sees the Constitution and the rule of law as a kind of joke, as like real estate law. There are things that he wants to get around and he's used to hiring lawyers to get what he wants. And you see him doing that in the presidency. I mean, he really treats the Constitution, including, as you just said, uh, the basic requirement that a president executes the law and not makes it as just something, you know, that you can get around and have the lawyers do it if they can. Now, I think that this worry about emergency is a a very big deal. Now, it's not that he doesn't have an argument on his side, so that's why I worry about what the court would do. Uh, But I'll tell you why I think it is an obvious constitutional violation. There are statutes, this is his argument, that say uh, the president is given power in various emergencies to uh, act in, in ways that use funds how he wants, even if Congress hasn't appropriated them. But there isn't an emergency. So that's the first thing, that he's lying clearly about the emergency. The second thing, which is even closer to, and I talk about this in the third chapter on the difference between an executive order and making law, why a president doesn't make law. Uh, The key case is called uh, Youngstown. Uh, It's about President Truman uh, seizing steel mills without the permission of Congress. And he said, well, I have the emergency power inherent in the Constitution to do it. And Justice Jackson writes the most important opinion in the case. It's actually concurrence, but it's become the, the legacy of the case. He had been in Nazi Germany serving as a prosecutor for war crimes, and he saw the danger of a system that gave a, a, a chancellor or a president uh, emergency powers. And he writes this strong, strong opinion about why there are no inherent emergency powers and why actually in instances in which the Congress has considered a policy and then rejected it, uh, you can't just go ahead and enact it. So there had been consideration of giving the president power specifically to take these steel, steel mills. And in that case, the Congress refused to do that. Now, that's exactly parallel to what's happened here. It's not that the Congress didn't consider the possibility of the wall. They did and rejected it. So for the president to then override and essentially Congress through an executive order is the epitome of what you can't do. Now, that, that worry about delegation, what will the court do in the end? I can't make predictions anymore. I did uh, very strongly in the travel ban case. And, you know, they went against common sense, even Justice Kennedy. Um, But I do know what the Constitution requires, and that's that a president not fake an emergency and then use an executive order to basically do an end run around Congress. Do you have – this is very interesting. And it strikes me, given given some of the background you've just given, um, do you have any views about how the major political party in the United States that had traditionally been – um, on the lookout for expansive powers residing within, you know, one particular branch, unchecked power, one branch uh, dominating the others. Uh, that is that the Republican Party had not only been just the party of small government, um, but also the party that seemed, um, at least in its rhetoric, to be really attuned to concerns about consolidation of political power. And now it seems that they're the party that is thriving on that very consolidation. It, it is a, a terrible thing that's happened to that party. I mean, they were even the Tea Party, and I certainly had my major disagreements with their policy views and how they interpreted the Constitution. But at least they cared about the idea of restraints on the presidency. And uh, that's just completely disappeared. Uh, they cared about rights where there really was bipartisan agreement uh, that uh, the right to free speech, for instance, was fundamental and that government shouldn't shut down uh, opposing viewpoints. And where have those people gone? I mean, there, there are a few, you know, commentators from the old Republican Party. 
there are scholars like uh, Professor Michael McConnell at Stanford, who mm-hmm. uh, can also have a book coming out that I think is, um, you know, has a lot of overlap with, with some of the arguments that I make, for instance, about executive orders. Uh, but yeah, the core of the party is, is just gone away. And, and that unfortunately looks like it was just a, a sort of temporary trope to talk about the Constitution. I mean, one of the things that I'm trying to do is to recognize that you can't make constitutional law for presidents that you like. And I think that Democrats are guilty of that, too, in the Obama administration. So I'm very critical, for instance, of President Obama's decision in Libya to not seek a congressional resolution. I think that it's very clear that that was a violation of the requirement that Congress initiate uh, war, not initiate hostilities, not a a president. Uh, But, you know, many in the Democratic Party uh, went along with it because he was a good president. I saw a presentation once about, you know, basically giving more power to the presidency clearly was written by a Democrat who had written it during the Obama administration. And uh, I asked her, you know, well, how could you how could you how could you say that now? And she said, well, it's a different president. And that's exactly the kind of thinking we have to get away from. I mean, we need to think about it, as you rightly said, the principles of the Constitution and what they require of us, independent of any uh, specific moment in history or partisan Judge. Yeah, you, you want to say to the to the person who gave that presentation, like, yeah, that's not how this can work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it can't exactly. be there's one set of rules when you like what the guy's going to do, what the person's yeah. going to do, and I then think that's almost a quote from the book. I mean, I say that very early on. It's not about what <laughs> when you like your friend that, that you know, then that you give them all the power. Unfortunately, <laughs> you know, Democrats and Republicans are complicit in the massive delegations that have been given to the executive branch, and um, you know, one of the things that we'll be fighting if he does declare. This, um, this national emergency. I mean, as I said, I think there's still very strong grounds that the fact that they considered and rejected the wall is, is enough. But there are these badly written statutes, in my view, granting these emergency powers to presidents in various areas. And, uh, you know, that's all about giving power to a president that you think you like. And we have to stop doing that. We have to be skeptical of the danger of a rogue and lawless president. That's true of this one. But I also... I uh, think it could be true of future ones, too, because the the cultural uh, moment that we're in that's produced this could could certainly do it again. Right. So you've more recently, since the book has come out, you've you've written pieces and uh, done some interviews about um, constitutional questions surrounding impeachment, I suppose, and whether a sitting president can be indicted in these things. Uh, can you briefly just sketch some of your views there? Sure. I mean, there there is a huge controversy about the question of whether or not a sitting president can be indicted. And I would say when I wrote the book, the vast majority of scholars held the view uh, that a sitting president was immune. And it's not just scholars. There are two memos written by uh, the Office of Legal Counsel during Nixon and then again reiterated during the Clinton era that give two arguments for this. One is basically that um, as the head of the executive branch, if you debilitate the president with a trial, criminal charges, an indictment, and a trial, you'll debilitate the entire executive branch. That The president is unique. One person is the head, basically, of a branch of 2.5 million people. Uh, and the ar- other argument is that the presidential office requires a kind of dignity that's incompatible with indictment. Now, I think those arguments are just flat out wrong. We can't allow uh, the indictment question when it comes to crimes as serious as the uh, co- collaboration with Russia, violation of several criminal codes, if it's true, the questions that have come up uh, in the Southern District of New York about the business 
that all of these issues, if they are true, and there is, there is evidence that the president has committed a crime beyond a reasonable doubt, I think absolutely that Mueller should disregard the memos, and he has independence. He's not just an employee of the Justice Department, and indict, because frankly, those arguments are terrible. Uh, the idea that a president is too busy uh, is belied by the fa- is disproven by the fact that the the coordination that can go on between the courts and the executive branch is nothing compared to the coordination that has to go on every day. I mean, the nuclear suitcase is flown around the world, moved in snowstorms. If that can be done, uh, meetings can be scheduled uh, so that a president can comply with the legal process. And in fact, it was done during the Clinton era, and and the world did not end. Um, the argument about dignity is even worse. I think that the idea of dignity in our system in a republic is connected to the notion of the rule of law and equality. And if we allow a president immunity to be above the law in that sense to escape, the real indignity is to the insult that's given to the victims or the uh, people who who have, uh, in this case, the American people, actually, in the collaboration with Russia, who have been uh, hurt by these crimes, our fundamental system of democracy. So the idea that somehow the office immunizes the person is a mistake. And I talk in the book about the first inaugural address where George Washington put it so beautifully. He said, uh, you know, if I commit a crime, if I violate the oath of office, uh, not just a crime, but if I violate the oath, subject me to constitutional punishment. And uh, to me, that shows that me, George Washington, I'm not the office. The office is above me, and that's why I have to be subject to constitutional punishment. So in my view, that includes indictment, certainly even while in office. Uh, Impeachment is a a broader category. I think that it really is itself about the oath. It's partly about violations of the criminal law and serious violations. But it also, I think, uh, involves non-crimes. So things like the travel ban, if he tried to implement that proposal to uh, torture the families of suspected terrorists, uh, if he tried to build the wall against the will of Congress, all of these things are potentially impeachable offenses. And we forget that. Uh, But certainly the Republicans reminded us of it during the Clinton era. Uh, And I think it's also clear in the impeachment of of the first uh, President Johnson, uh, most clearly in the hero of that chapter, uh, in in his words, uh, uh, Frederick Douglass, who said, you know, we're pretending that the president has committed a crime by firing the secretary of war. It's not a crime. You know, in fact, now it's probably not even unconstitutional. The real issue about Johnson was that he was a deep racist who was undermining the end of slavery. And that was the reason to impeach him. So I agree with Douglas. I think we've got to be honest about impeachment. It's different from indictment. It's a, it's about the oath. Fabulous. Um, Corey, you've been very generous with your time. So I want to thank you uh, for that. But I have one more question before we uh, uh, wrap up here. If you can give the current president and maybe certain members of his cabinet one piece of advice about the political office or the political offices that they hold and the constitution, what would it be? You know, Bob, I'm going to have to give you the honest answer here, which is I think there are a lot of presidents that are coachable. Uh, and this president maybe very early on might've been, but at this point in history, my advice would be resign because you're completely incapable of understanding the basic concepts. You lack the conceptual willingness to try to integrate into your own ambition, your own thought, the principles of the Constitution, the idea that you can't use the office for personal vengeance, that you have to respect the right of free speech and people to criticize you, 
the idea that you have to transform your uh, personal prejudice in order to respect the public equality of all people, regardless of race or religion. Those things that are fundamental to taking the oath, which, you know, at some point in history, maybe he would have been teachable. He is not coachable. He has a disposition that's really at odds with these basic constitutional requirements. There is a, a question in impeachment about the political fallout, but in terms of whether the standard has been met or my advice to him would be to resign, uh, yes, we're beyond the pale, I think, with this. Uh, unfortunately, not just racist president, but one who doesn't understand the idea of equality before the law, not just a vengeful president, but one who doesn't understand the basic idea of free speech, uh, not just a, a president that disrespects Islam, but one who doesn't understand the Constitution requires it. Uh, so, you know, this is, uh, in my view, I hate to say it, by far the worst president when it comes to uh, respecting the oath and uh, one that I want to see disappear uh, from this office by uh, either forceful removal through indictment and impeachment or through uh, ideally uh, resignation or maybe a negotiated settlement where the uh, Mueller team could convince him to step down and return for a lighter sentence. Do you think any of that's likely? Uh, it's very hard to know. You know, the good guys don't always win. I'm, I don't have a teleological theory of history or as somebody accused me of having a Whig theory of history. I, I think that, um, you know, King had a beautiful line saying the arc of the universe bends towards justice. Uh, I wish I could say the arc of the country bends towards the Constitution, but that might be the case and it also might not be. It's really up to us, I think, uh, to, to and that's why I've really switched my focus from doing uh, books for professors and talking at faculty seminars to try to talk to the American people as much as I can about uh, what this constitution requires and why this president is failing us so badly. Because uh, we can't rely on courts. We can't rely on Congress. We've got to rely on this next election uh, if worse comes to worse and there isn't an impeachment or a resignation. 2020 will be and should be and needs to be a referendum on the United States Constitution. Well, Corey, thank you so much. That sounds like a good and somewhat uh, hopeful, but at the very least, uh, practical point to end on. Thank you for talking to me today. It's always a pleasure, Bob. I, I, I really enjoy uh, conversation with you. Thank you for having me. And well, great. Thanks. Uh, and thank you, listener, for tuning into the Why We Argue podcast. I will remind you, it's produced by the University of Connecticut's Humility and Conviction in Public Life Project with generous support from the John Templeton Foundation. You can follow the project, if you like, on social media or on Twitter and Facebook at Public Humility. That's one word, Public Humility. Thanks for listening and bye for now. <laughs>